Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Programs broadcast. Today is May 5th, 2021. So for those of you that might be new to this format, this is one where we take leftover questions from the previous webinar broadcast and we answer them here. We also take any live questions. So if you want to submit a question uh, related to Evoke or therapy relationships with children, please feel free to submit it at any point. If you're asking for a child or if you are under the age of 18, please let me know your age so I can understand the level and the audience that I'm that I'm speaking to. So with that, let me get into the pre-submitted questions. Malia shared the first one with us. It says, my teenage son texted me the following. Until now, I had never known what it felt like to find out how much you have been lied to by someone you love and now realize how hard it must have been for you guys when I used to do it. I, I thought him finally having an awareness around how I felt during this active, during his active addiction would give me some kind of joy, but I just felt sad. Sad that the only way that he could really understand was if he must have experienced it himself. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I, you know, I, I think that's the unfortunate thing about being a human is that we don't, we can't have a, an experience or an understanding of an experience until we experience it personally. Um, yeah, so that's just part of part of the process. And what I like about what you're saying is it didn't bring you joy. Is at some level you're really just connecting to somebody else's pain. And while that that might be validating, joy wouldn't necessarily be the emotion that would come up for I think for a lot of us. So it makes sense that it didn't bring you the joy or the relief that you may have anticipated that it would bring. I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that you can't substitute a lot of things for experience, right? Having that experience. And I teach therapists all the time. I want to take a moment to share this with you. Uh, I ask therapists all the time, what are the, what's the benefit or benefits to treating children and working with families if you yourself don't have a child? Because mostly we just think of it as a disadvantage. But what are the benefits of not having a child, but yet being a therapist for children and their families? And my answer to that question is that you can't possibly imagine what it's like. And so when a parent accuses you of not understanding because you don't have children, your answer can be, you're exactly right. I don't know what it's like. And there's something about that that can be as validating as anything. I think it's when we try to make parallels or understand other people to relate our experience that sometimes we, we lose them, right? We lose contact with them. So sounds like you guys connected through your pain and your experience and that, that won't bring joy, but it, at least it brings a sense that you're not alone and that your experience is a valid one. So thank you for sharing it. Somebody asked the question, what about adult men who are therapy resistant? Oh, I'm fine. Oh, next week or, or month. Um, or, oh, I have a psychiatrist. Well, I, I don't think it's that difference between men and women who don't have therapists. It's just that women tend to be willing to do therapy more than men. So it's probably more predominant in our, in our culture. It's a really hard thing growing up identifying as male, growing up as a, as a male in our culture. We see, we are taught that our independence is a measure of our mental health. And that if we need something that we are weak. And so, so many things, we talk all the time about what 
culture teaches us about women, how culture frames the experience of being a woman in, in so many harmful ways. But that's why I've mentioned on social media recently, 93% of our prisoners in the United States are men. 93%. That is a gross, dramatic overrepresentation of one gender over the other. And so while men might benefit from structures that, that value patriarchy, right? We could talk about the wage gap all night long, but the fact of the, of the matter is that men aren't thriving in our culture. 93% of prisoners in the United States are men. So I think our wounds tend to be less visible, and that's that's in part because we spend a great deal of effort trying to hide them, and that our avenues for support, um, there's, a, there's an inherent barrier to that in, in our culture, right? That, that's taught into our culture, man up. In fact, a, a, a friend of mine just wrote a book uh, Mr. Justin Baldoni just wrote a, wrote a book called Man Enough. He directed a couple of movies. He's an actor. So if you're interested in, in the perspective of what it's like growing up as a man from somebody who's accomplished so much, it's a great read, especially for young people and kind of challenging this idea that, that men are skating through life harm free, right? Without the effects, without the effects of trauma. So yeah, it's a, it's a common thing for men to avoid treatment to avoid help, to avoid asking for help, needing for help. It, it, it cuts at, at a core piece of what most men identify with as being a man, which is that I'm autonomous and that I don't need help. So we have to understand how to meet them there. We have to understand how to engage them in a way that doesn't provoke that defense. And if we just push against them and try to convince them, we're really enacting a, a kind of violence on them. That's what nonviolent communication talks about, is that when we try to convince or control people about our perspective, even if it's right, that that, that is a violent act and that it's going to provoke the defense. So you're right on. And, and a lot of my, one of my passions in life is speaking to men, to males who have this, because I have this to some degree. I have the same kind of identity where my strength is manifested not by my ability to shed tears or to be vulnerable, but by how stoic I can be, how non-emotional I can be, how non-needy I can be. Somebody writes a question regarding my relationship with a friend. I've noticed that I'm usually the only one in the relationship to share struggles. My friend never does. And she let me know about her struggles only late later in time or randomly, but she says that she deeply cares about me. How can I let her know that I feel uncomfortable at being the only one that shares and talks about what I'm going through? Well, that's a, that's a great question, a tough one. All the great questions are, are, are really tough to answer. Um, I think you could share with her just this. I mean, this is a, a question that I relate to. And I think sometimes we're contributing to that dynamic unknowingly, unconsciously, right? We are um, not, not asking questions, not pausing. And some people are just reluctant, but we find ourselves in relationships 
that are one-sided one way or the other. It, what I would ask, in addition to the question or, or the statement that you just mentioned, is I would say, do you feel safe? Do you feel like you can share? Do I feel too fragile? And, and you know, part of it could just be about their personality. So I think just sharing with them your experience, you can't force it, right? It can't be contrived, but you, you can definitely talk about it. Remember, just like the previous question, for some people to share their pain is to be wrong, to be bad, to be unlovable. So in that respect, you're really, you're bumping up against their, their wounds, their limitations. And so to, to charge in after it might not be the most effective way. But I, I guess what I would encourage you to do is approach it with curiosity, with questions. And with even some awareness that so much of the time, folks, so much of the time, we end up in relationships that we have some complaint about, right? Have some problem with, that we were a part of creating. I think therapy, and it could be defined in so many ways, but one aspect I, I think of successful therapy is understanding that you may be contributing to the dynamics, to the problems, to the issues in your life, that you want to see go away to, to the problems that you would complain about in therapy that would bring you into therapy, right? So I would get curious about my participation in that. I'd get curious about what's going on in the relationship. And as much as you're able to ask questions about it, I think it could be helpful. But curiosity, I would be very, very curious about that dynamic. Somebody writes, our older son just went into rehab nine days ago, and he's excited about contacting our younger son who went through your wellness program and is now in a residential treatment center. We feel like our older son is just barely scratching the surface of recovery while our younger son has been at it for six months now. Do you have any feedback on whether you should think it's a good idea for our older son to be communicating with our younger son at this point? A couple of thoughts. Number one, I would defer to the therapist that's treating your younger son, right? Like I would think of it as a part of the treatment plan and kind of get their guidance. Depending upon where he's at, that might be a, a real boon to his work. It'd be nice for him to be the expert um, in a lot of ways. That's that's kind of where my first, my gut goes to first. Um, but again, if he's feeling fragile, if that somehow would, if he's already struggling with emotional dysregulation and that could kind of rock the boat even more, I would defer to the therapist. I, I can't think at the outset of a lot of negative aspects of that. They don't come to mind, but I can imagine it. I can imagine something that possibly could occur. So my, my gut is, it sounds like a great idea, but I would defer to his to his therapist. And, um, you know, I'd also be curious about why your older son, maybe he just wants the support of the connection. Maybe he feels more connected to the younger son now. That doesn't sound like a lot of downsides, but I would just check with a the therapist to make sure. Somebody writes, I'm terrified of going on my field visit to be rejected by my 16-year-old. Evoke is his fourth program since February 1st, and he's been gone for eight weeks already. I am protecting myself and not showing up, and not showing up will be a boundary, but a new way to hurt him, or so I feel. How do I take this jump and deal with this reject rejection? Good question. I think first and foremost, you said it in your question. I think 
to, to take the leap, you've got to, I think it'd be helpful to prepare yourself that it could, you could realize your worst nightmare in, in, in the context of this visit. And can you ahead of time kind of process that and, and, and find out where that comes from, right? Being attached to a specific outcome is your vulnerability here, right? And it sounds like you're protecting yourself against some recent hurts from him. And there might be something even in your background. You know, overall, this is for all of you, overall, it's really, really, really important that our children be allowed to feel whatever they feel about or towards us. We still get to have our boundaries about what behavior we'll tolerate, what treatment we'll tolerate, and that's a healthy boundary. But it's important to develop a capacity to allow them to feel, to be themselves in this process. Now, if it's too painful for you and too triggering, and your solution is to take care of yourself by not visiting, that's also really, really, really great. To make progress in areas of self-care, we have to be learned to disappoint people. We have to learn to let other people down. Doesn't work at work. If you're a brain surgeon, you don't want to let anybody down, right? The, the consequences are life and death. But generally speaking, it's hard for me to imagine somebody making progress in the area of personal growth without improving their ability to let, let, let other people down. What's cool when we let our children down and we in the service of taking care of ourselves and the way that you're suggesting that you might is they learn. I mean, just imagine that. If somebody took care of themselves and taking care of themselves, including not being there for you, your feeling would be, well, screw this. You're breaking the deal. If you're going to take care of yourself, then I'm going to take care of myself. And I'm going to stop trying to take care of you. And you're the one who did it first. That is so healthy, right? We don't, we weren't taught, we really weren't. And our romantic movies and our, our romantic ideas about family are that you can make somebody happy. But we learn in recovery that your serenity and peace of mind is your responsibility. I'll say that again. Your serenity, your peace of mind, your happiness is your responsibility. And there's no better way to teach that, that by, by modeling it, which might mean you're going to do something that people aren't going to like and, and they're going to be disappointed about. But what they learn from you is that you can take care of yourself and that they don't have to. And it is that, that, that urge to take care of other people that oftentimes costs us critical and healthy self-care. It doesn't lead to disconnection or a lack of love. It leads to healthier boundaries. It leads to, I think, authentic love, healthy love, healthy differentiation. So at the, the last thing that I'll say about this is that I've, I've shared this before, but um, I thought that therapy would take away all or nearly all of my fear. I really did. They didn't really talk about the stuff that I'm talking to you 
you folks about they didn't teach us this in graduate school and my my best guess is because uh the professors haven't done their own work they just did a good job at research and writing papers and being published right building up that 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 uh that resume but this work is means that we're gonna have to do some things scared what i learned was you build up enough new information in your head that you can do the thing that terrifies you. But it's still scary. But you have enough new data, new information, new programming that you can walk through the fear. So whatever it is that you can do to buoy yourself up, to get support from my podcast, from the books, from other books and podcasts, from friends, from mentors, from sponsors, from other people, from your home therapist, Get enough new information and new programming that you do the thing that terrifies you. Therapy won't take a bit, take away your fear. It won't take away your shame and your guilt. That's something that you work on. But it will give you enough new information, new programming, new ways of thinking that you'll be able to step through those things. But, but you can't go around them. And you can't sit on the sidelines and just talk them away. And I, Brad, really did think as a client, I did think that my therapist was going to be able to get rid of 98% of my fear and shame and guilt. And I learned that I'm going to have to do things scared. And that's okay. That's okay. Somebody says, I find that when I validate and reflect back my children's feelings, they feel like I'm speaking in a formulaic way and it loses its impact. How many times can you say, thanks for letting me know you're angry before they feel like it's it's a line, not a genuine statement? And they stop sharing because they feel like you're not, not really feeling the emotion. I was talking about this with the staff today when I was doing my staff training, my weekly staff, tra staff training. And what I was telling them, I'll go to the I feel statement. I said, why do we keep teaching the I feel statement as if people are going to use it the way we teach it. That's not realistic. Nobody uses I feel statements in their day-to-day -day life, or very few people do. Same with reflective listening. It's not, see, the, the skill of the I feel statement or the skill of reflective listening and validating, deep listening, what you're talking about, it's not the technique that does it. The I feel statement demonstrates... Uh, Ownership over the feeling, I feel. Helps us understand the relationship between the activating event, that's the win part of the I feel statement, and I feel this way because I think or I believe. Right? It helps us understand when you walk out of the room, when I'm talking to you, I interpret that that you don't care. Right. So we start to learn ownership, triggering events, the meaning that we make out of those triggering events, and then the last two parts are what we can and can't control. Now, I don't want you all, I don't want your children to be using I feel statements in the world because it's just, it is contrived. But I want you to understand those principles. And so often it's just listening. The, 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 the validating listening that you're doing isn't the answer. It is emblematic of your ability to hold space for your child and allow them to feel what they feel. So oftentimes it's saying nothing. That's the, that's the deepest 
answer to your question. But maybe the superficial answer that I'll give that I think is important too is, so what? <laughs> so what in a sense, like, you're trying to practice to become a, a better communicator and you're going to do it in a clumsy way. So it's okay if you practice kind of the fundamentals to begin with. All great artists, athletes, right? All of them practice the fundamentals. It'll be a year, in two weeks, it'll be a year um, from when I started first learning how to play guitar. So I'm learning how to play guitar. But when I try to show off to my kids or to my wife, I don't play the scales for them, but I practice the scales every day, right? Before I start playing, I practice the scales. But I never say to my wife, hey, let me show you the G, G major scale. Or let me show you the minor scale. I never do that. But it but it teaches me some, some musical theory that, that is underneath all the music that I'm playing. So that's what the skills are for. But, uh, you know, if they beat you up for, for sounding rote or contrived, from me to you, from me to you, that's okay. That's what it sounds like when we first shift. You know, I, I was talking, I've shared the example. When I, I'm, I'm a, I've been a decent golfer in my life. My, my handicap has been down to single digits. Let's just say that when I was playing a lot. It's not there now. But during times in my life when I'm trying to get better at golf, I, I've taken lessons from a professional. And oftentimes they will adjust my stance, right? The position of my head, even my grip. That's probably the best example. And when they first changed my grip on, on a tennis, tennis racket or on a golf club, my first instinct is there's no way I can make solid contact with the ball. That, that just feels awkward. And of course, the coach just looks at you and nods and says, just start swinging. And after a while, it becomes, it feels more and more natural. It becomes a, a kind of a second nature to you. But that's what happens for all of us. And to be critical of, of, of the exercise, that's just, that's just you not being able to win, right? Remember, one of my favorite adages is you don't get to, you don't get to win, you get to choose how to lose. If I could have one simple slogan to, to most people in the world, it would be that. That in a lot of situations, you don't get to win, you get to choose how to lose. And I like you losing by trying to do something different, by trying to improve your communication skills. But your kids and others in your life at times will be um, passionately committed to making sure you experience failure. They're just telling you what it feels like for them. They're telling you how they feel. So thanks for sharing that. You are not alone. Somebody writes, when you attune to feelings, how do you avoid having your kids come to think you are being formulaic or using a technique? If you constantly say that sounds frustrating, you sound angry. I think I basically answered that question in the previous one. Our son started his program at Evoke last week. What can we expect to hear this week from his therapist as well as the field staff? You'll hear from the therapist. You'll hear about his first week is going, how he's adjusting. Um, you might hear that he's angry. You might hear that he's sad. You might feel hear that he feels hopeless. Um, but what you'll hear, you'll, you'll start to hear. I was thinking about this just the other day. 
I'm not talking about this in terms of a real experiment. I was thinking about the thought experiment about what would it be like if we accepted kids into the programs and the parents didn't write any letter or tell us anything about the kid, the child. And I was thinking, I think that would be wonderful in a way. It won't work and we won't ever do that. But in a way, it would be wonderful because the whole experiment would, I think, illustrate that you are, wherever you go, there you are, right? That I think what you'll find in the most most cases is that the descriptions of your child's early adjustment, you, you recognize him, like they get him because he's there, because he's showing up or she's showing up as they are. So that, that's the, the initial phase is you kind of hear how they're settling and how they're adjusting. And in this small little microcosm that we call their group, I think we, we experience and observe all of the dynamics that you've seen, both positive and negative in their lives. I think an important part of those early phone calls is seeing how you're adjusting. When I would do a phone call, I would ask always how the parent is doing first. Then I would talk about letters to and from, you know, letters that they, that you wrote to them last week and letters that they wrote to you, how you're reacting or interpreting those things. Then I would talk about their weekly update, both the update that the staff provided me on the days that I wasn't there for therapy and then on my therapeutic interaction with the child. And then I want about 15 or 20 minutes at the end to talk about family dynamics. But that's my template. What I also have to learn is that not everybody wants the exact same thing. Some families want to talk for 15 minutes about the child and then 45 minutes about the dynamics. Some families want lots of stories and examples. But not just stories and examples, but what does that mean that he wouldn't work on his fire? What does that mean that he was poking at the other participants of the program or that he wasn't engaging or that he was following one of the negative peers that, that's out there? You know, like what's the interpretation of that? So in a sense, I'm inviting you to ask the therapist on your weekly phone calls for what you need. But part of what we're trying to do is read from you what you need and give that to you. Somebody writes, if you don't negotiate over boundaries ever, how do you make room for reasonable feedback from your kids? For example, my curfew has been 11 since I was 16. Now that I'm 18, it's time for a later curfew. How do you know when it makes sense to negotiate versus saying, I'm sorry, you're not happy with your curfew? Great question. Family health is in part defined by a family's ability to renegotiate reevaluate and adapt boundaries over time that match with the premise that we don't negotiate is off, right? Those moments when I'm saying it's okay just to let them have their angry anger about it, that's when you've decided. But I always say to parents, take whatever your children share with you, whatever feeling they share, and you run it through the parent filter, right? You run it through the, the adult filter, it becomes information. Are they telling me about them? Are they making a point that I agree with? Do you have a history of, of compromising your boundaries and capitulating so that the child will be happy? I mean, that's one of the things that evoke that we try to teach you is that it's complicated. It's organic. I had a, I had a colleague who referred me many years ago, referred me an individual client, a parent of a 
of a of a former client. And they gave me their update, their perspective on this person. And they said to me prior to the first phone call, what are you going to say to him? And I said, I, I don't know. That's not how I do therapy. I guess I'm going to first ask him, how's he doing? Or what he would like to talk about. And then depending upon how he responds, I'll have something to say about that. But the, we're just, the goal in, in therapy is trying to teach you all and, and trying to be a human being. And that's messy and inefficient and there's no two alike. So, um, yeah, you could negotiate boundaries. That's healthy, but it, it, it's not about not or, or, or always doing it. It's about kind of what's coming up for you. That's the therapeutic process. When a parent makes a decision, I don't challenge the decision, but I do pay attention to the thinking that goes into the decision. And we might have a dialogue around that. Somebody writes the next one. Our 15-year-old son left Evoke five weeks ago and is now at a therapeutic ranch. We get an hour each week to speak via Zoom. How can we think about these phone calls in order for them to be productive or supportive of our son? I feel we are doing most of the work and we um, we also do not want him to be bombarded with questions. He got annoyed when I asked if his calf was eating solid food yet. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny that he got angry. I don't want to be in the old role I used to be in in trying to get him to open up and what ends up being annoyed. Perhaps we should just sit with him in silence and wait for him to engage your thoughts. I mean, I like that. I love the idea of you sitting in silence and waiting for him to leave. I also like you asking him, even your example about the calf, you know, my response, I mean, that, I was just telling my wife this last, last night, that's the best part of that conversation. And that's when you could say, oh, I'm glad that you told me, or tell me what that feels like to you. It probably feels like you're taking over, that you're intruding on his ind in independence, right? He's got it under control. He probably knows more about the calf than you do unless you grew up on a ranch or lived on a ranch. So there's something in there that's important for him to tell you. So it's not about, folks, it's not about not making mistakes or making mistakes. It's about what you do. In therapy, what I teach is, and I teach the same thing to parents, the mistake that you make isn't the, isn't the problem. Every therapist will offer an insight, a suggestion, uh, respond to a client in a way that the client feels like is not helpful. Everybody will do that. Every parent will do that. But what you can model is, and again, I'm not talking about the, the technique. You can model saying something like, oh, I'm glad you told me or I didn't know. Can you tell me more? The, the, the mistake that people make is when they get attached to it. Well, this is what I was trying to do. No, no, no. Let me explain myself. Or I wasn't doing that. That's when it becomes a problem. The first thing, that's just human. My wife was sharing with me yesterday. We were talking about cases and approaches. We're, we're both therapists. And my wife was said to somebody in a moment where she made a mistake. She, she said, thanks for telling me. I'm glad you told me. That's a very different experience than most people have with authority figures. So 
That's not a problem. That's an opportunity, in my opinion, for the most important part of the discussion, which is to talk about the relationship. Talk about what it's like to be in relationship to you. Listen. Take ownership. See if you can adjust and meet him where he's at. And I also like the silent idea. It speaks to the same idea about letting him lead. Somebody writes, on Monday night's webinar, you talked about not making your kids not making your kids' job to take care of your emotions. That makes sense to me. But when you use I feel statements or some variation of that, aren't you making your emotions their problem? As in, I feel scared when I find out that you were driving drunk. Isn't that exactly what you said not to do? You're right. In a sense, you're absolutely right. I, I, I said in my new book, I am almost at the point. And I say this in the journey of the heroic parent too. More important than the communication skills is what's your intent? Why are you saying that? I think it's to say, okay to connect, to share or ask for help, to own your stuff. You know, what I try to tell my children in my, my more enlightened moments is this isn't your problem, this is mine. Last night I was, you know, when I tried to apologize to my daughter after make, making a mistake, I said, I'm sorry, I was feeling triggered. I wasn't asking her to take care of it, but I was owning it. But you are absolutely right on. I, I cannot overstate this. If you share emotions, and you do, it's not even an if. If you share emotions with the people in your life, with the idea or the intent that they need to change so that you don't feel that unpleasant emo emotion, you are right. You're doing exactly what I teach against. That's another way, reason why on their surface, the I feel statements aren't that great, right? Just like a hammer can be used to hit somebody over the head. It doesn't make the tool evil or wrong or bad, but you can misuse a tool. So you're thinking, I love your question. And I write about it in both the journey of the heroic parent and more at length in the audacity to be you. I say in the audacity to be you, I'm almost at the point. And I underline it. I'm almost at the point where I discourage parents from sharing their feelings with their children. And then people freak out and say, that, what about me? And don't I write to hear my feelings? And when do I get to speak up? And then I say, I said almost. I said almost. I'm almost at the point. And the reason is, the key thing is, the reason I say almost is because it's very rare that a person doesn't understand what you're suggesting. That the implicit ask and the sharing of feelings is that they, the other person change. So if that's your goal, don't say it. Or, or say it and qualify it and say, I'm not asking you to fix it. I have to deal with it. I have to go take care of myself. I overreacted. I was triggered. I can't be present with this or with that because I'm overwhelmed by the feeling. Right. But you you couldn't be more more right on with that. Somebody says, what is the general time frame for our kids to physically and mentally get over nicotine, THC and cocaine? THC, it's about 30 days before it's out of your system. Cocaine, it's a few days, 72 hours. Um, depending upon uh, nicotine, um, a few days, five days or so, give or take. But there's also the addiction that's more psychological, that is the, I want to 
I, I don't want to be present in my own life, right? Addictive behaviors are an attempt for us to not, not be present in our own lives. And that takes a long, long time to, to break through on. So while the physiological effect of the substance might be gone in a few days to 30 days. Um, sometimes when children would talk about feeling homesick or wanting to be with their parents, I would often say, this is what a withdrawal feels like, in a sense. You know, when we're looking for comfort outside of us, instead of leaning into the feeling. That's a predisposed, uh, predisposing behavior to 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 addiction behaviors, possibly. So, and there's also the process addiction. Process meaning not the chemical necessarily, but the behavior, the, the you know, smoking a cigarette, people will for years or at least months if they've smoked for not as long, they'll, they'll, they'll experience that, that, that loss of the ritual. One of the things that I did when I quit smoking was um, I went out and took breaks with people on their smoke breaks because I didn't want to miss out on the social time. I used to love about smoking. It was a mindful exercise in a way, a breathing exercise, right? And so just going outside and taking a breath so that I'm getting that, that, that same positive benefit out of it is important. Thank you. Somebody writes, while intellectually, I know that child development can't be skipped over and the experiential learning that brings wisdom, However, I'm still frustrated that as a collective, we don't seem to be able to pass along certain types of knowledge we have as a society. For example, we discovered fire as a species, and each person doesn't have to rediscover fire. Why can't the same be true for other things? The science is very clear that maladaptive coping strategies eventually fail. Why does that have to be learned by experience for so many people rather than being able to follow our collective wisdom of science and society? Part of me just wants to say I agree with you. I'm frustrated too. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 uh, I just want to empathize with you. Another part of it is because part of our learning process, you get, it's like saying, I ran, I, I ran a, several marathons in my 40s, seven marathons. If I had just had the cardiovascular and muscular fitness to do it, it wouldn't have been the same, right? The journey is the destination. The, the journey is the experience. And so in another way of thinking, one way of thinking about it is I totally agree with you. And as a therapist and a father, I've had the same experience, but that's, that's why our, 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 it's so important to understand the adolescent brain and neurobiology because it's what makes human beings so adaptable is that they, their, their brain prunes over a long period of time, right? Our brain uh, is wired and malleable for a long period of time. So part of it is the, the, the journey wouldn't be the same if we just arrived at it. But you know that. You know, if I buy my kids a bike, and they leave it out on the front lawn versus if they buy themselves a bike and leave it out on the front lawn. It's just a different experience, right? Part of me agrees and part of me knows that that's just the way it is. And 
You have to figure out how to live with that, 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 that nature. Somebody writes, my son is in recovery. After being in a wilderness therapy, after being in wilderness therapy and recovery program, he completed his first year in college and is now back home. He is doing well and have a support and has support from professionals. My question to you is this, what advice do you have for parents who want to continue to support a young man in recovery without controlling him? We are worried about him getting together with his high school friends who will trigger memories of his smoking together. Great question. The way you support him is work on your recovery. That's the answer. And your recovery will tell you that you can't control his recovery and that his recovery is none of your business. It'll tell you that intellectually. You'll have to learn to experience that over the next 50 years or so because it takes that long, right? So in Al-Anon, which is a group that was created for people who, with loved ones who are struggling from addictions, you learn things like stay on your side of the street. If we get focused on their recovery, we have compromised our recovery. If they become the primary project for us to focus on, we've lost contact with the real project, which is us. Now, supporting our children, supporting the people that we love and care about and serve professionally, all of that comes out of that work. But the, the answer to your question is, the best way you can support him is to work on your recovery. And out of that will come behaviors and a way of being with him that will support him on his journey. But your anxiety or angst about him falling off the wagon, the, the impulse that you have, that I have, to try to control and engineer that, that's actually part of the disease that you carry, right? That's your disease. That's my disease. That's the disease of every therapist I've ever met. You know, we get into therapy thinking we're going to fix people, and we learn, as we learn what therapy is, that that's not our job. But that's why most of us got into it, is because that exact impulse that you shared. So the best way is to work on your recovery and make you make you your project, your primary project and not him. Somebody writes, this is a question about a post you had in Instagram stories yesterday. Who is the man who has the podcast about wilderness therapy? I started listening to episode with his mother and he talking about it um, was before, during and after wellness therapy. Thank you. I don't remember that story. Malia, can you give me a clue about what they're asking about? I'm not sure of that. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh. Was it the the Choose Mental Health, maybe? I think it might have been the Choose Mental Health. Um, we have become a part of an organization called Choose Mental Health. We're one of the founding members. And the goal is to promote mental health and mental health awareness more, more broadly, similar to the Children's Miracle Network, is we want to raise very, very large amounts of money to help people get, get therapy, to help promote mental health education and so forth. So I think this week we have been highlighting the founder, the, 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 the executive team on the Choose Mental Health board to kind of get the message out. That's probably what it is. Choose Mental Health. So if you go to, 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 uh, to your social media and, and and look at the Choose Mental Health. I think it's called the official Choose Mental Health. Choose Mental Health official or official Choose Mental Health. That's what it's about, I think. 
Somebody writes, can you please talk about these two questions on how they might work together and how they might not be in line at all with each other? Number one, who am I? Number two, who do I want, hope to become, be become? Can you please talk about these two questions and how they might work together and how they might not? Wow, that's, that's a really hard question. Because I just want to become who I am. You know? Um, that's the way that I think about them. My goal is to become who I am, who I've always been. And who I am is buried beneath trauma and shame and fear and the loss of who I am, which is my honest feelings, my, my deepest, most simple, honest feelings, was, was sacrificed or compromised because I didn't want to be abandoned. I didn't want to be left alone. I didn't think my parents or my, my teachers, and they gave me good reason to believe this. I didn't think they could survive who I was, who I am. So for me, this is just Brad Reedy's answer. This isn't the right answer. Uh, who I am is who I want to become. I want to become who I am. My work in therapy, that's why we have Finding You and 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 Returning to You as the, the titles for our intensive work because, you know, enlightenment is about unlearning. Enlightenment is about unlearning the things that you were taught about yourself. It's about unlearning the, the, the layers that were put on top of you about who you should be. It's about getting rid of should and shouldn't. And our great fear is that we become, if we become who we, we are, that we're going to be alone, um, that we're going to be punished, that we're going to be rejected, that we're going to be judged, that we're going to be too much or too little. But that's just, that's just a function of the environment. That's just a function that we had human parents where we easily found the edges of, the, of their limits or teachers or, or, or bosses or, or mentors or, or, or even peers. So for me, the goal is to find an empathic, capable other who's more interested in finding me and seeing who I am than, than fixing me or shaping me up right. And it's in that context that I find the deepest and most powerful truth, which is how I feel. And it gets translated into situations that I know how I feel when I'm feeling something. I know when I'm hungry. I know when I'm tired. I know I don't like mushrooms. I know I prefer this. I like this. I want this. I don't like this. It becomes just me being able to live and speak in my truth. It doesn't have to be some profound philosophical thing, but it's just knowing what I want and what I don't want and being able to stand in that, even if the entire world tells me it's wrong or it's less than or it's not enlightened or it's stupid. Most often when a client says to me, I know I shouldn't say this, or I know this is wrong, or I know this is justifying, or whatever it is. What I know that I'm about to hear next is some kind of truth that they've been taught is a wrong thing to think and feel. So that's my thought about that, that question, that answer. Somebody writes, my son is 18, went to a residential treatment center, has autism, and has committed crimes to support his meth addiction. His dangerous behaviors have led us to tell him he cannot live at our house. My husband and I go to work on ourselves and go to Al-Anon. There are services for developmentally disabled. 
he could receive, but not as, as an untreated addict with no desire to stop. Besides grieving and accepting things as they are, what can we do to help him find his way? There seem to be no services for anyone, for someone with multiple problems and poor daily living skills. Gosh, you guys are asking really tough ones tonight. Um, I don't know what else you can do besides doing your work and getting clear. And I think that there are lots of resources. Um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is a free resource. Al-Anon, or excuse me, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, those are free resources. Um, so I don't know that you can kind of force them into any, I think you can offer support. We'll pay for a therapist. We'll give you a ride, whatever it is. Decide what you're willing to support. But I don't know that you can get into his head and make him decide what you want, want him to. And, and you know, the, the, the probably the most technical answer to your question is read the book or listen to the podcast or watch the webinar on motivational interviewing. If you all want to know how to get people to do things, motivational interviewing is the most, I think that the most straightforward way to do that. How to, it should say how to become a manipulator while staying healthy, how to be an effective and healthy manipulator. Motivational interviewing by Miller and Rolnick. I also did a podcast about it and there's a, there's a webinar about it. That's where I would lead you if you wanted to learn the techniques, the approaches, but it's not coercive. It's not shaming. It's not intimidating. It's developing a kind of a discussion, becoming psychologically safe, inviting the person to think about what's going on for them. But if he doesn't want to engage in it, you can't force it. But motivational interviewing would be my answer. It's written for therapists. It's got a tremendous amount of research behind it. But I think it, it could be helpful for you. Just listen to the podcast first and see if it interests you. No more questions at the moment, huh? Well, I'll get into the upcoming stuff. And then if any questions come out while I'm doing that, then I'll take those at the end. So my two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be, are available on Amazon and Audible. If you want to do a deep dive in your own work, I cannot think of a better use of your time and resources. I do it every year myself. My adult children have done it. My wife does it. We pay for our staff to do it somewhere else. Doing a deep dive and understanding how your context, your family of origin impacts your relationships today. You can do that in person. The next one available is June 9, June 9th through 13th. Or you can do it online. We have them in two parts online. If you've been to... Uh, finding you already, returning to you is available. It might be full. The May 12th one might be full, but we'll open up another one if we have more inquiries. Um, what else? Like I've said, we have pursuits programming. These are three to 30 day programming. Think therapy, light, recreational therapy. These are for families, young adults, maybe in between programs or after a program. Think therapy, light, or reconnecting to your work. We have support groups. So tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m., May 6th, 6.30 p.m. for Wilderness Current Families and Alumni. And for Intensives Families, it's May 11th at 6 p.m. 
Contact Malia at evoketherapy.com for more information. As I mentioned earlier, we ask all current families to go to six, 12 step support groups just to try them out. Any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous. One of my favorites is adultchildren.org, Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's really not about having an alcoholic parent, but it's about dysfunctional families and the impact that it has on us. I love, love, love adultchildren.org. RefugeRecovery.org is a great Buddhist-inspired recovery program, less of an emphasis on a higher power. And then, of course, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI.org is a great place to get free resources in your area. All of these broadcasts are available on your favorite podcast app. Just go there and search Finding You in Evoke Therapy Podcast. If you subscribe or like us there, then you'll be notified when new podcasts come up. You can also go to soundcloud.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy. Or you can find at Evoke Therapy Intensives on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook by searching either Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, our blog has new content each week. My next broadcast will be May 10th at 6.30 p.m. I think that's Monday. That is Monday. And it'll be the last chapter on the journey of the heroic parent. So look forward to that. All right. Thanks for sharing the links, Malia. Uh, I have time for one more question. When a child persistently antagonizes a parent while house chores and things that need to be done are in progress, what are some of the tools that teach the child to better respect or give space to the adult? Um, take a timeout. Rather than giving them a timeout, you take a timeout. I love this technique of parents taking timeouts instead of children. You know, behavioral consequences. I don't have any creative ones, but behavioral consequences can be helpful. I guess the third area of skills is to stop what you're doing and ask what's going on. Ask questions. Why are you doing this? Is there some need that you have that I'm not filling? See if there's somewhere you can get with your curious questions with them. That would be kind of my third category. All right, folks, if there are any leftover questions, we'll pass them on to the next time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for on behalf of the people that love you and that you love for doing your work. I hope this is a helpful point of contact. This will be, as always, on our podcast sometime tomorrow morning. Take care, and I'll talk to you on Monday night. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.